Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in Iowa City. Thank you for joining us for what I know will be an interesting and revealing discussion about our neighbor to the south, Brazil. Before we get started, let me remind you that we'd love to have you join us for these live programs if you can. Otherwise, you can catch them later on UITV, on iTunes, and on YouTube, as well as various websites. Information about upcoming shows, as well as links to archived programs, can be found at international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. Tonight's program will give us a snapshot of Brazil in 2014. Our immense South American neighbor, comprising roughly the same land mass as the United States, is the world's fifth largest country and seventh largest economy. Brazil is bursting with biodiversity and undergoing rapid development, and it faces a host of tough choices for both its people and the natural environment. Tonight we'll look beyond the brilliant beaches and the soccer arenas to reflect on the multicultural legacy of Brazil's complex past, as seen in everything from its language to uniquely Brazilian artistic expressions to the political and social dynamics that are actively shaping the Brazil of the 21st century. And a note to anyone in the room who may like to tweet or otherwise uh, do something with social media, uh, please use the hashtag World Canvas if you're posting on social media before, during, and after the show, or mention at uiowa.ip on Twitter. Our guests in this first segment are Maria Jose Barbosa, professor in the University of Iowa Department of Spanish and Portuguese. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me here. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Laura Graham, who is an associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of Anthropology. Thank you, Laura, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. So let's briefly set the stage for this discussion about Brazil. Um, Maria, you and your colleague, Marita Murphy uh, Marks, wrote an intriguing piece that appeared in yesterday's Press Citizen here in Iowa City. And in it, you described many of the uh, things about this vast country that we may, as outsiders, imagined to be true, but we may in fact be getting some of them wrong. What, what do we think we know about Brazil, and where are we mistaken? Well, I can only speak to the generalized ideas and the stereotypes that we hear so often. And a lot, you already mentioned some of them. It's the beautiful beaches, the string bikinis, the I don't think you mentioned that, but I'm adding it. <laughs> uh, and the soccer fields and the football and, um, um, you know, this country that seems to be bursting with energy, but at the same time there's crime and violence, and that's what we see on, in the media. Well, uh, quite often people think about Brazil, they think about the Amazon and they think about Rio de Janeiro. Those are the two areas that seems to be like uh, the symbols of Brazil. Brazil is a very large country, as you mentioned. You know, it's the size of the United States, uh, ha nearly half of South America in land and population. Yeah. 203 million people in Brazil. Our language is Portuguese. We don't speak Spanish. That's another stereotype. Mm -hmm. our, our capital is not Buenos Aires. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> another stereotype. And, uh, and also, when people think about Brazil a lot of times in terms of export and economy, they think of coffee. We, um, I invite people to take a look next time that they fly from Cedar Rapids anywhere else regionally, uh, and they see the word Embraer, where that plane is made, mm -hmm. in São José dos Campos, in São Paulo. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they buy a pair of shoes, take a look, made where, you know? 
and so a lot of other things like this. Uh, Brazil competes with Iowa uh, for soy, uh, soy production, and so it has diversified uh, agriculture also. So it is the, the idea that Brazil was a coffee producer, still is, but uh, the economy has diversified. As you said, it's mm -hmm. now the seventh economy of the world. Two years ago was the fifth economy of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a country diverse in uh, ethnicity. It's diverse in cultures. Five very different uh, regions in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, immigration, very similar in many ways, very similar to mm -hmm. the United States. We had uh, the gold rushes. We had the immigration, very similar. And it's a very, very diverse country. Mm -hmm. so. Can you tell us, uh, so that we have some kind of conceptual idea about those five regions, uh, what, what are the five regions of Brazil? The, the Amazon region, mm -hmm. uh, then you have the northeast, where is the cradle of Brazilian civilization. Uh, then you have the, what we call the center, the Midwest of Brazil, but actually the Midwest of Brazil is a misnomer because the Midwest of Brazil is actually the Midwest of South America. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it borders with Bolivia. And mm -hmm. if you look at the map of Brazil, uh, there are only two countries in South America that do not have borders with Brazil. Hmm. That gives you another extension of the, the yeah. borderland, of, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sorry, say the uh, question again. We were, we were through three of the five. Uh, yeah. Regions. Oh yeah. So I was only on the second one. So the mm -hmm. the southeast is where I come from, and Carla also comes from, and and Rafael comes from. It's um, the most industrialized. And oh, I forgot them. So many Brazilians <laughs> here today. Oh, and Ben. I'm sorry. <laughs> so yes, yes. it's uh, the the most industrialized and in the. In the most populated mm -hmm. area, mm -hmm. and in the south of Brazil, which is completely different from anything you see in the north or the northeast, is where the large uh, immigration of uh, European immigration is. And you're going to see there in that area more people that look like people from Iowa yeah. than from the other regions of, of Brazil in terms of uh, race and mm -hmm. ethnicity. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, so I know that you are responsible for organizing a big conference that will be held here at the end of this week at the University of Iowa. And it's all about the, the constructions we have uh, in the United States of Brazil, how we understand Brazil, how we think we understand Brazil or present it to our students and to, uh, to others um, from the U.S. perspective. Uh, can you tell us about this symposium that you have coming and why you thought it was important to have one in the first place? The title is Construing Brazil in the United States. In some ways, it's like this idea of refashioning the idea. What is it that, uh, how is Brazil analyzed, discussed, envisioned, taught? I mean, because we, we bring in 14 scholars, one of them is from Brazil, sitting right there, from uh, coming to campus to, number one, to showcase our campus as well. Number two, to put uh, Brazil on a map on a, on a campus and to highlight also the Portuguese program on campus. We do have a major in Portuguese. We teach Portuguese, and a lot of students and a lot of our, our colleagues don't know it. So in a way, by bringing all these people here, important people from all over the, uh, uh, all over the United States, and two of them from Brazil, we are also calling attention to the topic but also to Brazilian studies in the United States and at University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. And I understand the public can go to these um, various presentations on Thursday and Friday. Yes, the presentations begin at 9 a.m. on Friday and go all the way to, uh, to the evening. 
Then on Saturday, the same thing, different presentations from cinema to telenovelas to um, anthropology, uh, history, uh, dance. I mean, just name it. Mm -hmm. We have it. And then we're going to end the grand finale is a concert that my colleague has organized, and it's going to be a beautiful pieces of Brazilian music. Ben is going to play. Uh, Rafael is going to play. Maurita is going to play. So mm -hmm. there are eight um, musicians you know, yeah. playing and singing. Uh -huh. and it's going to be just phenomenal. It's mm -hmm. going to be a really great finale. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you gave us a little um, heads up on that so that people can attend it if possible. But um, now returning to this sort of general introduction to Brazil, you mentioned that sometimes there are people who will hear Brazil and they immediately think of the Amazon, or they think of um, problems with uh, deforestation, um, indigenous tribes and some of their struggles against modernity, modern life sort of coming in in undesirable ways. Laurie, I want to go to you now and have you tell us a little bit about the work you do with indigenous peoples and uh, human rights and resource issues. Can you uh, give us a picture of what you've seen in well, this area? Well, one of the snapshots I can give is that people do think about the Amazon as really sort of either Rio de Janeiro or the Amazon as the center of Brazil. Um, and Brazil, in fact, has six biomes, distinct ecological regions, and the Amazon is just one of those. Um, there is also the Mata Atlantica. So we have the Amazon, Mata Atlantica, which is the forest along the um, Atlantic coast, um, the Pampas in the south, um, the Cerrado, which is the savanna in um, the, the grasslands of the interior, the Pantanal, which is a huge marsh, the largest marsh in the world, um, and Kachinga, another uh, biome called Kachinga. Um, so, in fact, Brazil has done a very good job of reducing carbon emissions and reducing deforestation in the Amazon. But what has happened is that the deforestation has ha is increasing in other areas, particularly the Cerrado or the savanna. Um, and that's the area where I work, and that's where the soy agribusiness is just booming right now. Mm -hmm. Brazil and um, that central Cerrado region of Brazil vies with the United States, as Maria José said, between first and second place in the world as the largest exporter of soy. And most of that soy, they use a lot of GMOs in the area, most of that soy is going to China, uh, where it's used as cattle feed and also... Um, to Europe, where it's used as cattle feed, especially in the wake of the mad cow disease. There's a demand for um, using soy products. Um, so there is a huge environmental crisis going on that, that people are really blind to in the Cerrado region. Um, a lot of um, deforestation, not enough regulation of, of toxic uh, chemicals, the world's largest sweetwater, freshwater aquifer there is under that region called the Guarani Aquifer, um, which is in danger of uh, being polluted. Um, so the people that I work with are putting pressure on the government to um, request strong environmental regulation for that region, in fact, for all regions in Brazil, as they put in place for the Amazon. So Brazil has done a wonderful, really a wonderful job with protecting the Amazon, much more um, 
monitoring of that area. Of course, there could be more, but it is um, reduced carbon uh, production, carbon emissions by 75% in the last 10 years. Yeah. So it, it has really um, been very positive in, mm-hmm. in the Amazon, but there's, there's still more to be done. Mm-hmm. So speaking about indigenous peoples um, who may not be part of this sort of uh, uh, the governmental um, desire for, uh, you know, greater industrialization or highways leading to every, uh, every part of South America or whatever, people who have lived for a long, long, long time, centuries, in an area where they maybe were not even known to the, to the central government until just a few years ago, what kinds of uh, issues are they facing regarding, uh, you know, uh, water usage, traditional lands on which they may have, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if they hunted in certain areas that are now no longer accessible to them. Do they, do they, can they come up in the court system against a multinational? Um, well, those are some of, of the big issues that are, that are currently being debated. Um, Brazil's constitution, which was passed, um, went into effect in 1988, um, was Latin America's first real multicultural constitution and raised the bar for other, um, other nations that were coming out of military dictatorships. Um, not, so there, there are provisions for indigenous peoples and peoples of African descent um, and, and sectors of the population that weren't protected previously, people with dis- disabilities. Brazil really is a leader in legislation mm-hmm for uh, disabilities. Um, A lot of the rights that have been granted to indigenous peoples, however, are paper rights. Um, The Lula government doesn't have a great track record of demarcating indigenous lands. Um, What we see is for many of the social services um, programs that the government itself historically provided have been decentralized, and um, the responsibility for them has been given to NGOs. So there is a a great unevenness in um, the provision of social services. Well, and I'll throw this back to you as well, Maria. Um, I think many of us are aware that there's an election pending here in just a a very few days. There'll be another national election, not only for the president, but for many seats in in, um, the other governmental bodies. Um, can, can you help us understand what the, uh, if there are great divides in the political sides within Brazil, what do they hinge on? Well, the two uh, front runners now, one is the current president and the other one is, has been, belongs to the party of, the pre, of uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, who was the president before Lula. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, ideologically, they are different. But because of the scandals that have been uh, so prevalent now in terms of corruption in, uh, in this government, which I don't think, and it's not my opinion, that it was uh, Dilma Rousseff who actually uh, promoted this or allowed this, but they have been going on for a while. Mm. And so, but they just exploded now, I mean, with uh, investigations now. And I think that has hurt her. Mm-hmm. And so there's that divide in terms of uh, you have a, a government that was supposed to be leftist but and was supposed to have run into, the, um, into 
the platform of honesty and for the people, with the people, and etc. And then there is all these scandals, you know, the corruption mm-hmm. and etc. So I think I think that's hurting her. Uh, the the other candidate now is rising, you know, and he but he is backed also by. Uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, who was the pre- previous president, and mm-hmm. now Marina Silva, who was uh, previously in second place, third place. Now she has mm-hmm. um, given him her support. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's, uh, there is a divide. We actually mm-hmm. don't know actually who is going to win. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, another thing that um, I, there was an awful lot of press this summer, certainly before the World Cup, about uh, a certain amount of discontent in, among the people in uh, Brazil about the extent of uh, expenditures uh, regarding the, uh, the arenas that were built for the World Cup mm-hmm. that will be used for the Olympics and so on, that those funds could have been used better for the support of people and education and so on. Is this an, an issue that you think will will continue on into the... Is, is this a big, big issue for people in Brazil right now, the sort of those who may want to show Brazil um, moving into the future with, uh, you know, firm grand steps and, and this infrastructure that, that looks very good to the rest of the world, but may... Well, some of that infrastructure has never been completed. That's one of the points of, um, you know, people yeah. are upset about is that some of the roads were not completed. The airport was not to the standards that they had set. Yeah. And uh, a lot more money than had originally been planned for it. And a lot of people put a lot of money in the pocket as well. Mm-hmm. And so for those reasons also, I think people are unhappy about it. And also there's another, th- another thing we need to remember is that the economy now uh, is not growing. Mm. And every time that it hurts the pocket, it hurts somewhere else as yeah. well. So I think this is not going for Duma as well. Mm-hmm. But again, we don't know how this is going to play because uh, there are a lot of programs in place that took people a lot of uh, out of poverty. Yeah. And uh, an estimated 20 million people was out of poverty from the, uh, around the 20, uh, 2010. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very hard to predict mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, are you very familiar with what's been happening in the economy in the last few years in the areas you study? Or, um, well, there has been terrific growth um, in the in, in the industrial sector and in the agribusiness sector. Um, Brazil is investing a tremendous amount in large infrastructure projects um, like hydroelectric dams, some of which are very controversial. Um, like the Belomonchi Dam, which is um, being put on the Xingu River, um, which is affecting many indigenous peoples as well as other riverine populations. So some of those are very controversial. But um, the Lula government, um, the, changes in econo- the changes in the whole economic profile since the Lula government came in in 2003, there has been um, terrific progress, mm-hmm. um, reductions of poverty, um, programs for um, minimum wage, increase in minimum wage. Um, so things have improved. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Dilma won. Um, the economic policies of the, the Lula government have improved the conditions of the vast majority um, in a way that was not true of the um, the economy had grown at a rate three times faster than during the um, 
Fernando Henrique Cardozo government before Lula. Um, so those are positive. There's, even though the, the, government, the economy has slowed down right now, it's been through a decade of really a massive turnaround. So she has that going for her. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, since we've been talking about politics and the economy and all of that, that's, uh, I, I think we can maybe leave that for a moment now. I would like to have you both talk, if you wouldn't mind for a few minutes, about the language, about, about the feel of the place, about um, the culture of Brazil, that uh, obviously we only have a few minutes for this. We can't go on as long as we might like. But um, what, what is the... Um, when you think of the place you came from, what comes first to your mind? My language. Yes. <laughs> I am biased because I speak <laughs> Portuguese is my first language and I teach it. But I hear over and over people say how musical it is, mm-hmm. how beautiful it is, and I have to take that into consideration. Yeah. Even though I maybe sound I, I sound biased because that's my first language. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. Uh, so language for me, and we are very sensitive about people who think that we speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of them are shaking their heads. We don't speak Spanish. We can understand it because we have a sound, uh, complex system of, uh, of vowel sounds that allows us to understand Spanish, not the opposite. Rarely would somebody who speaks Spanish can understand as if we speak anything fast. We can understand people who speak Spanish because of our sound system. Um, the 19th century Portuguese writer Elsa de Queiroz used to say that Brazilian Portuguese, as we, some people call it, is uh, Portuguese with sugar. Uh-huh. Yeah, because of the sugar plantation, but also because the difference between uh, uh, Portuguese spoken in Brazil and in Portugal is that we relax on the vowels. We pronounce several vowels. Where there is not a vowel, we insert one. <laughs> and that makes it musical. You know? So mm-hmm. I think I identify myself first with my first language. Yeah. And that is my source of, my source of identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how uh, is English commonly spoken among uh, you know, young people in Brazil? Is, is it uh, you know, like... In many places in Europe now, you will go to a country that, that um, in 20 years ago, you might not have run into many people who would speak English, and now it's much more common. It's a lot more common, a lot more popular, especially in the large cities. Mm-hmm. Everybody in one way or another studies English. How much they speak, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would like to add that there are many other languages also spoken in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So Portuguese definitely is the, the natural it's language. the national language. The national language. Yeah. Um, but and, the, and the official language. And the official language, but there, in Brazil, there is the largest population of Japanese outside really? of Japan. So when you go into some of the neighborhoods in Sao Paulo, there's an area called Liberdade, and there there's Japanese. The menus are in Japanese. The street signs are in Japanese. Um, also Arabic. There's a large Lebanese population, and you find newspapers in Lebanese. And then there are 180 different indigenous languages, which are all very separate. Um, So Brazil is, I think if I were to characterize Brazil, it is an incredibly diverse and multicultural and heterogeneous place, Mm -hmm. geographically, culturally, linguistically. Yeah. 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 
Wow. Well, you've, you've given <laughs> us a good start to the evening here. And, and also, I'm sure that people have a chance to come to your symposium and hear these various speakers will have yeah. a wonderful time. Yeah, there's many, many wonderful <laughs> talks and the music and everything else. It's just really going to... The idea was to put Brazil on a map here and also to showcase the University of Iowa to our guests who are coming from mm -hmm. outside. Wonderful. Well, I wish you good luck with that. Thank and thank you, you too, Laurie. Uh, so deep thanks to Maria Jose Barbosa and to Laurie Graham for being with us for this first segment of uh, World Campus this afternoon. And I hope you'll stay with us for the second part in this series, which will explore Brazil's musical soul. And uh, all World Campus programming can be found on YouTube, on UITV, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to learn more about Film Scene, you can go to icfilmscene.org. So I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much for being with us, and good night. This is part two of a three-part series called Snapshot Brazil. In this segment, we're going to indulge our senses a little bit with an excursion into the music and dance of Brazil. Some would say the soul of Brazil. My guests are Marita Murphy Marks, professor in the University of Iowa School of Music, just next to me here. Thanks, Marita. Next to her is Rafael dos Santos, a professor at uh, the Universidad Estadual de Campinas, Brazil. Nice Thank to have you, you here, Rafael. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Armando Duarte is next to him. He's a professor in the University of Iowa Department of Dance. So, so nice to have you all here. Um, you know, if you mention Brazil to just about anybody, anywhere, somebody will think of sambas or composers like Vila Lobos and Pichinguina. Uh, somebody else will certainly think of dance and the exuberance of carnival. And um, I'd like to introduce this whole segment here with Marita and Rafael talking about the music they've recorded together, the music they've performed together in many parts of the world. And uh, we'll hear a few cuts of uh, some of their music and have them talk a little bit about what these songs mean, uh, what kinds of expressions they are in terms of folk traditions or uh, perhaps some uh, elements that may be uh, borrowed from a European tradition. Uh, we'll get right into it in just a second, but my first question is for Marita, which is how did a nice girl from Wisconsin ever get hooked on Brazil? We don't have enough time. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I think that I, I really wanted to um, explore some other kinds of music except um, the, um, our classical music, and I really needed um, to grow in another way. So I approached Rafael in the hallway at the mailboxes <laughs> one day, and asked him if he would do a recital with me. I, we did not know what it would be, but I thought that, well, we could do some romantic music and maybe we could do a little jazz or something. So in the end, it just ended up being all jazz. And um, at the very end, when we were about to perform, he says, Morita? I think you have the Choro style in your playing. Would you like to try? And I said, well, what is it? And that's really how it started, because then I decided to play, I think we played four Choros on that recital, and ever since I've been very immersed in it. it it's just the most fantastic music. It's... It's, um, it's very free, and you can change the, the mood of a particular shuttle, and it, you can make it more personal for yourself or 
um, it just in any in a lot of different varieties of well, style. So, so, so let's talk about what a shoro is. I'll, I'll turn to you, Raphael. Can you describe a shoro? Yes, uh, it's uh, basically instrumental music played uh, by uh, wind instruments, uh, flute. It's a, it's a very typical instrument of the shoros and clarinet, and sometimes um, uh, trumpet is more uh, more seldom, and uh, accompanied by guitars and mandolin and cavaquinho sometimes. Mm, what's okay. a cavaquinho? Cavaquinho is, is a kind of ukulele, it's a oh, small yeah. instrument with four yeah. strings. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the main characteristic of, of the choro is uh, um, it's played more or less fast, mm. although, although there are some uh, slower pieces too, yeah. but pre- the predominance is fast mm-hmm. music. And it has a very live rhythm. And it has uh, one, one thing that is very characteristic of other, of many music, uh, different styles of music in Brazil, which is uh, the syncopation, which is, um, the accent is always placed in between the beats, so it makes people feel like dancing. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're very strong. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, so we have some examples of, of the music you've recorded. And mm-hmm. um, for those who don't know these, these two people, Marita is the clarinetist, Rafael is the pianist. Uh-huh. And um, I think we might go to these songs okay. now. Um, can you describe Umazero? Umazero, I, I wish... You can, say it. you can it. say it in Portuguese. Um, zero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, it's a soccer score, one to nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, when Brazil beat Uruguay for the South American Soccer Championships, and I think it was in 1933. I was not there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Look at me. Sorry, I, <laughs> I just thought you might correct me, and it would be just fine. No, like, you know, but 30s, I think yes. I'm right on the year. But anyway, that was that. Oh, it's very famous, Shoro, I think. It is, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. 
I don't know you very well yet, uh, Raphael, but I do know Marita, and that seems like the perfect kind of music for her. When these crazy little riffs going, going all over the place, it's just wonderful. Did it feel absolutely natural to you once you got to know these songs? After a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, after a while. Yeah. You yeah. know, it really takes... Um, I just remember really growing into it for the first few years and, you know, becoming much more comfortable mm. with the rhythm and, you know, the style and... Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and listening a lot to the great Brazilian clarinet choro mm -hmm. players, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, Proveta and Paulo Sergio Santos. And, so there's a long yeah. tradition of clarinet. Definitely. Ah. Pa Paulo yeah. Mora, Mora yeah. you know, I listened a lot to them, and mm -hmm. they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. so. What do you enjoy about playing a song like that? Oh, um, it's lively. It's... Um, it allows me to improvise, which I love to improvise, oh, yeah. you know, and to react to what people are playing. You know, it always always make, uh, makes me feel like dancing to what I'm yeah. playing. So it gives me gives me more ideas. Yeah. You know, and it's very I don't know what call it, subtle, subtle, very very subtle. There's yeah. things that are very subtle, and uh, it's very close to the way we speak to well, like. Um, yeah. Professor Maria José said about the prolonged intervals, you know. Yeah. yeah. So we rest in the vowels when you play. It was like uh, think about a, a lyric, something that helps me to do that, you know. So it makes the music sound at the same time relaxed yeah. and bringing uh, uh, forward. Uh, yeah. One yeah. time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, now we have another one that we're going to play here. Uh, uh, Espina de Bacalhau. Yeah. What can you tell us about that piece? How is well, it Well, this uh, was composed by. Another clarinet player, uh, Severino Araujo, who uh, was for many years, he died about eight years ago, I think, but he was for many years a leader of the first big Brazilian big band. It was a kind of jazz, in the jazz format, but he played also choros, you know, it was a kind of already appropriation of the, the jazz big band, you know. And it, it was a big band that started in 1933, so pretty close to Count Basis and Duke Ellington yeah. band. Yeah. You know? And uh, he was a very good clarinet player. And then he wrote this, uh, this choro. In, it looks, there's so many notes, it looks like a codfish spine. You know? <laughs> that's the title of the music. Oh, I see, that's yeah, the title. Yeah, de Bacalhau. Oh, okay, very good. Spine yes. of a codfish, huh? Okay. So, <laughs> so let's go track 15.
Well, there's one song that we're going to use as kind of a transition to bring Armando into this uh, discussion as well. Um, it's a, as I understand it, it's a song that's beloved by Brazilians, Carinhoso. I wonder if either Armando or Rafael could tell us something about this song, about the words to this song, or what it means to you. I do the dance. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some people say that Carinhoso is actually the, the real um, Brazilian national anthem because everybody sing it and know the lyrics, you know. And it was composed by Pixinguinha, in, I think, in the early 10s, 1910. Yeah. But he left it on the drawer because it had only two parts, and a, a good show needed to have three parts, like um, a minuet, you know. Like yeah. A, and then I think it was uh, recorded only in the 30s because then he decided, to change, times changed, so he decided to uh, find somebody to put lyrics on it. Mm -hmm. And it's a very beautiful lyrical song, and um, the lyrics too, they, they're very um, tenderness. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of tenderness. It's like a good love yeah. story. You yeah. know, exactly. it can't go yeah. wrong when you have mm -hmm. the right words at the right time and with the right yeah. arrangements, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, well, uh, the harmonic structure to everything is really very, very well um, composed, you know, the parts of the way they relate and the way they sound. So it's, it's a wonderful music to play and listen to. So let's hear a little bit of Carinoso. There is a syncope there as well, which makes quite Brazilian. keeping following you even though you keep running away from me Aww. it's a great love story I mean, it's a, you know who so best is como eu sou tão carinhoso if you knew how much I love you and how tender I am and how sincere is my love I know that you never would run away. No, 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 no. Come, come, feel the heat of my lips falling. 
Yours. That's Brazilian, though. Gotta, gotta go graphic here, you know. Vem matar essa paixão que me devora o coração e só assim então serei feliz. So please come and kill this passion that is devouring my heart. Only then, my love, I'll be happy, happier. <laughs> and, and this is like a samba too, you know, because it has that syncope that we're talking about. Like this, we should try. Which is the syncopation of the beat. You have this B, B. But Brazilians yeah. love this in-between beats. Yeah. To transform into a samba. Chorinho is known as the father of samba in terms of arrangements, all the musical elements. A song that if you don't know, you keep denying or agreeing, and it works the same way. It, just, <laughs> it works. It's plain. You look at her, you look at him, and, <laughs> and it works. Always does. He saw us I guess Pichinguinha with Carinhoso did for the Brazilian music what Tom Jobim and Vinicius de Moraes and João Gilberto did with Bossa Nova. Because at that time, uh, a few years after the composition of uh, Carinhoso, mm -hmm. sorry, okay. uh, he moved to Paris and he stayed there for a few years with his band called the Batutas. And, and Chorin was a big hit, among other songs, and that's what brought the attention to how elaborated Brazilians could be in its composition with popular songs, with popular music. Uh, and of course, like the minuetos and, and other forms, uh, European forms of music, and dance, in that case, uh, influenced Brazil a lot, in particular Rio de Janeiro in the southeast uh, region. And Chorin showed the response because it wasn't a minuet, it was, was a typical Brazilian song because of the syncopation, you know, that will then forever be part of what Brazilian music is recognized for, I guess, mm -hmm. among other elements. So Armando, uh, for those of you who don't know, Armando teaches in the dance department here, brilliant choreographer and, and wonderful teacher. And um, uh, I, I know I asked, I asked you to talk to us just a little <laughs> bit about samba, about the, uh, the dance, the dance form. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, of course, we just have a few minutes because to explain even the culture of some in Brazil in terms of movement, you would have to explain how the country was formed and, and this miscegenation of these cultures, European, Afro cultures from uh, different nations and also the indigenous people of Brazil. And I think Samba is, is, is definitely uh, birth, the birth of Samba was in relationship to the mixing of these uh, this, uh, uh, ethnicities. Uh, we say the Latin people in general, we move first, we think later. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I think Brazil makes justice to that. 
there's no cultural event that you want to attend that you see Brazilians just like sitting and listening. I mean, maybe an opera or, or a classical, mm -hmm. but outdoors and so. And you go to sports, uh, soccer games, and you see people moving and standing, and, and it's, it's, it's part of our culture. And of course, with the culture of carnival that started in the turn of the 20th century in Brazil in the form that we know now, with the school samba parades, these communities that come uh, down to the main avenue, call it samba drum, and perform uh, uh, thematic-based parades, samba took another level. And, and the dance, which is purely based on improvisation, uh, there's more than 40 kinds of sambas, as we know today. Samba is a very cannibalistic art form. It keeps changing and transforming, absorbing all kinds of expressions you can imagine that exist in the world. And, and in the movement, it's a response to the rhythmicality present on samba. We say one of the forms of samba that we know is sambar no pé. Can you say it? Sambar no pé. Pé. Sambar no pé means speaking with your feet, what the rhythm is saying. Uh, and usually this is done in an improvisational manner and responding to what the music is suggesting. Of course, uh, carnival music is very percussive. Uh, it's 98% percussive. And uh, samba, although different genres, percussion is, is one of the main elements. And so the chik-taka that we were doing just a, a few minutes ago is how we would do with the body. And Brazilians are good about that. I mean, definitely in responding. You don't need to be a dancer. It's just the idea that everybody can move within, uh, uh, in response to music mm -hmm. in general. And samba is the mainstream, definitely. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Period. Oh, no, no. <laughs> a lot of conversation. Yeah, you're perfect. Well, let me quickly ask you before we end our little segment here about the uh, trips you take, I think almost on a yearly basis, with University of Iowa students to uh, Carnival. You go yeah. To, yeah, I've been fortunate that since 2008, coming back from a carnival participation in Brazil, I went there, it was like my fifth anniversary, I was like, I have to be in parade, you know. Yeah, so I did that, and then when I came back, I had this insight that, that after talking with a few people, I decided to create two courses. One is called Brazilian Culture and Carnival. Mm -hmm. It started as an elective, and now it's a gen ed. We started with eight students, now we have 32. I'm very wow. proud about it. Wow. Go Hawks. <laughs> yes, definitely, and they love this charming accent. I don't know what it is, but it goes a long way. And it's a course that, as a gen ed, the students dance, even though they're not dancers, and yeah. they learn theory, and they see pictorial images of Brazil, and we talk about the Afro-Brazilian diaspora, the 450 years of slavery, so it's quite serious, but everything ends in samba, <laughs> in a way, right? Uh, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, but that's the way it is. And then, as a result of that course, I decided to investigate the possibility of taking students to Brazil and through the Office for Study Abroad. I have done three times. We do every other year. And I take students during the winter break, mm -hmm. minus 50 now here, <laughs> 92 <laughs> degrees there. So mm -hmm. just that is very appealing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we investigated the making of the Brazilian carnival parades in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, along with the aspects of the Afro Brazilian Afro diaspora. And we're forming the next group now, actually. We're about to confirm everything. And we started with six students in the first group. The last group were 20. Wow. It's growing, too. It's Wonderful. quite good. <laughs>
Wow. Well, this has been such fun. Armando thank Duarte, you. yeah, and Rafael Dos Santos and uh, Marita Murphy-Marks. Thank you so much. <laughs> this has been really great. And I uh, hope all of you can join us for the third part in this series, where we'll be talking about Brazilian sensibilities and aesthetics with three more really interesting guests. Uh, World Canvas programming can be found on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to check out Film Scene, visit icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for being here this afternoon. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you this afternoon from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and happy to have so many of you here in the room with us for part three of this series on Brazil. By the way, we invite you to join us for these live programs if you're in Iowa City, or you can catch all of the programs uh, later on on UITV, on YouTube, or iTunes. And you can find information about upcoming shows as well as links to archive programs at international.uiowa.edu. In this final segment of Snapshot Brazil, we turn our attention to what we're calling Brazil's sensibilities and aesthetics. Our guests are Carla Ferreira, just next to me here, associate professor at the Federal University of São Carlos, um, Brazil. Brazil, oh, yes. yes. Also uh, here as a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Iowa this year, so really grateful to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. And next to her is Monica Correa, associate professor at the University of Iowa School of Art and Art History. Great to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. And at the end, we have Rylan, uh, Ryan Oliveira, who's an MFA candidate in the University of Iowa Department of Theater Arts and a playwright. Yes. So thank you, Ryan. Thank for you being. for having me. You bet. Uh, so, Carla, I'd like to turn to you first. I know okay. that you teach uh, literature at your yes, university, yes, and we thought we would explore Brazilian literature a little bit with you this afternoon. Uh, you know, what are some of the main themes in Brazilian literature? What's some of the history, and uh, particularly in post-colonial times? Okay. Uh, nowadays, Brazilian literature is uh, going through these post-colonial challenges. And the most of the themes now are not what they used to be. Um, nowadays, minorities and multiculturalism has been on the agenda. It came to the spotlight. But from the very beginning, we had something in our formation, as a Brazilian literature formation, uh, came into being as real literature during Romanticism. When uh, the, country, the writers try to define the country, define ways to have a national project for literature. Then, when we, in the beginning of the 20th century, during modernism, we had the, this huge national project for literature. But nowadays, formation times are over, or at least they should be. <laughs> they are over. And uh, people started to understand that Brazil is huge, diverse, as was mentioned here before, and there are many cultures in there living together. So a lot of subjects to be talked about, things to be written too. So uh, nowadays, for example, we have in the when I talk about minority, I have gender uh, conversation and concerns, uh, Afro American subjects. There is a very uh, famous writer over there, a woman, a female writer, Conceição Evaristo, who is talking about who's writing about being a woman in Brazil and an Afro American woman in Brazil from Minas Gerais. So uh, it, it is at, at the same time regional and worldly, something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's I guess. Since the very beginning, Brazil was uh, 
going from national, being local, regional, and globalized. So that's stronger now. We are trying to balance those two sides, talking about those more contemporary subjects. Right, right. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful things are coming all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, if, if um, I were to think about some of the literature in, in America, I think there are certain themes that crop up all, very, very often, like this idea that Americans are independent. It might be the loner who's oh, out there. I you know, see. there are certain kinds of things that I think turn up in my own culture's literature or movies very often. Are there similar themes in Brazil? It, it depends on history or the historical time. From time to time, we, we have certain types or certain myths, national myths coming up So in characters, in literature, mainly novels. But what we have, uh, a recurrent one was the malandro, Nowadays, malandro is not that famous any longer because it's not so good to be a malandro, but malandro was part of literature from the very beginning up to modernism. Hmm. Okay? And that is the figure of that man who is poor but is very smart and can deceive authorities and can make do, you know, and someone that is very seductive, sexy, women admire, <laughs> so something like that. So he has the way to deal with things, something related to the song, he said that way of that movement. But nowadays that is not exactly what we see. It's still there, but not that much as it used to be. And besides that, we also had the, this rural uh, character that is Caipira, so the person from the rural areas, mainly Sao Paulo rural areas, and a certain Asia, people from the interland also, so very local and regional. And nowadays, because of this globalized literature, I told you, we also have that urban uh, someone that is just go through the cities and is by himself, something like that. You know, so that's a more cosmopolitan theme uh, nowadays. Uh -huh. But there, there's not something as we, you have here mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. that mm -hmm. it is not. It was very similar in the very beginning. I mean, during the Romanticism, both literatures were at the same path, trying to define the country, find good ways for a democratic country. But then Brazil had its different way of dealing yeah. with the things. Yeah. Yeah. Are there a, a few names you could give us of, of Brazilian writers that you'd really oh. like to draw our attention to? Yeah, there are the canonical ones, such as Machado de Assis, Guimarães Rosa, Jorge Amado. There are so many. I wouldn't be Lispector. And uh, Monteiro Lobato for children's literature. But uh, nowadays, Chico Buarque de Holanda, that is also a musician, Gilberto Noll, that talks about this uh, urban living. Um, João Baldo Ribeiro. Um, Conceição Evaristo, as I said. There are so many nowadays writing and very good writers. There, was, there is one that is very popular, but there is not the one we teach at the academy. <laughs> <laughs> there is Paulo Coelho, everybody knows. I saw his books here. He's okay, but not exactly <laughs> what, in terms of aesthetics. It's something that's yeah. yeah, not yeah. for tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here, uh, while you're in the States with your Fulbright, are you teaching about Brazilian um, literature? Or, uh, or 
what is your work now that you're oh, here? Oh, okay. I, I came for a fall term just for four months as a Fulbright scholar. And uh, back there, back in Brazil, I teach American literature. Oh, yeah, okay. and also comparative with um, Brazil, always bringing Brazil, but it's American literature. Yeah. And here I'm working uh, in team teaching with Professor Barbosa mm -hmm. and also uh, doing a research on the multiculturalism in America in Terrorist by John Updike. Oh. So you're a writer, so wow. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I hope you're nice enjoying to your time you too. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, you bet. Well, uh, let's just take a minute now and go down and uh, down the line and talk to Monica Correa. Mm -hmm. uh, you teach in the School of Art and Art History, and you are a designer. You mm -hmm. uh, teach 3D design and all kinds of complex things with computers and whatnot. And um, <laughs> and uh, so I'd like it if you would start off and tell us a little bit about what what you what your specialty is and what 3D design actually is and then let's look at some of your designs and talk about some of the, the um, influences you think your own home culture your brazilian culture um, might have upon the work you do sure um well i am an architect and uh, i got a degree in brazil and i worked for uh, 12 years with commercial interior design mainly and uh, in brazil um, there is a lot of modern architecture uh, mixed with a lot of craft, yeah. uh, and uh, that's probably where I come from. So I also have a degree, uh, MFA degree in design, and I teach 3D design. That is basically furniture design, uh, objects, and interior. Um, and uh, here at the University of Iowa, I have a chance to bring to my students this experience that I, I kind of nurture as a Brazilian, uh, of working with objects that are somewhat um, what we call less is more, uh, very clean uh, objects that sometimes are uh, very much engaged with detailed stuff that still are clean structures. Mm -hmm. um, we do work with a lot of technology like everybody else in the world is uh, working um, and um, that's pretty much what I do. And my work is, it, like when I said Brazil, it's one of the countries in the world, if you want to really go and study and learn about modern architectures, where you're going to find several examples. We were very lucky to have uh, this guy called Oscar Niemeyer, uh, which was a great uh, teacher in terms of uh, teaching the world, the possibilities of working with concrete structures. Um, and he was very fortunate to be the person asked to design the buildings for the capital of Brazil that moved from Rio de Janeiro to Brasilia. So he had, just for himself, and he worked with Lucio Costa, which was the, 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 the person in charge of doing the urban design uh, for the city to just dream who, who, which architect does not want to have that chance. Yeah. So he basically designed the entire capital. And because he's, he was born in Brazil, um, uh, there are several examples of his work in Rio de Janeiro. He was born in Rio, several examples of his work in Rio de Janeiro, where I'm from. Uh, so I grew up in this environment. I was educated uh, in this university, Federal University of Rio, which is another modern uh, campus 
so that is has really uh, had a real impact on what I do and what I teach. Um, and Brazil also has, like everybody else already talked about, the different cultures and influences from different places in the world. Uh, it's a very colorful country uh, with a lot of uh, detailed, and when I mean craft, there's so many different kinds of natural fibers, natural materials. Uh, Brazilian design is very much, if you think of something that is really looking for uh, the tradition of investigating the natural materials, this, this is the place to, to go. Uh, most designers in Brazil don't work much with like um, man-made uh, materials. It's really working uh, with natural and, uh, and working with the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, now there are a couple of things that I, I would like to look at and have you hold up for our audience here. And also, I, I would invite everybody to look at Monica's website. It's phenomenal, her, her own work that is uh, available uh, for you to look at on the website, but also links to various design expositions uh, at which she and others have, have displayed just incredible things. Um, and I know that your students and you are also going to be going to Chicago very soon for a, a really right, great honor. Yeah. That just this year, I had a chance to have a show in, in Milan, uh, nearby the Brera district, uh, and also in London, uh, to show my work. And it was very interesting that the, the, the viewer responded to my work uh, exactly like I'm describing. They could see uh, connections with architectural forms. They could see connections with natural materials. Um, and, and I'm also taking my students to uh, Chicago in, in two weeks or two and a half weeks for this exhibition in the Navy Pier. This is the second year that the program was selected uh, for what is called the SOFA exhibition. They, have, uh, they launched uh, last year uh, the CONNECT, which is a, a competition for design programs in the U.S., so we are going to be there with not other five prestigious universities in, in the country. Uh, and very interesting that I had no, um, I, when I asked the students to create this piece to take to Chicago, uh, they, I don't say anything. We have discussions about what they're thinking, but I don't participate in the, in the initial moment because I give them freedom. And I'm, I'm very surprised to see how they are taking the, they are using wood, natural materials, and they are keeping it simple, um, just like it's in a very different way of expressing, but I can see that some of the things I teach is passing on to mm -hmm. my students. Yeah, yeah no, that's great, and it's a real honor for these students, isn't it? It's a it's a very tough competition, and second year in a row to be invited. Yes, and I just heard uh, because they also promote. They have this uh, uh, partnership with a glass museum, uh, which uh, foster uh, a competition for the students participating in the Connect exhibition. Uh, and I just heard it this afternoon that the first place and second place were my students' designs. So I'm really that's proud of my students. Great. Yeah. Great. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. And could we look at? Oh at yeah. A sure. Sure. Of these so I just uh, it, because I'm a visual artist, so I kind of feel like sharing. So this is a lamp that I designed with a, a digital laser cutting technology, 
Um, it's a, a made of plywood, and um, I'm making a series. This is actually like sort of a table lamp, but I have a quite large piece about this size that I have a, one piece in my living room. Uh, I would like to work with natural colors, warm uh, feeling. Um, it kind of, I think I got the idea translated. And another piece that I can share to somehow highlight this thing about using uh, craft. So this was an installation that I made that uh, coming from lace, uh, very detailed structures in lace that I kind of blew and ex expanded the detail to create this kind of uh, interesting ceiling kind of structure. And what is it made out of? This, this is one? actually, uh, I, it's a natural uh, a plastic paper called Yupo. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, beautiful. So Thank I you. completely uh, recommend that you check it out on Monica Correa. Yeah, it's uh, monicacorea.com. Dot com, right. Well, so Ryan, we're going to turn to you now and, and hear a little bit about what you're doing. You are getting your MFA in playwriting yes, here. Yes, I am. And um, I first came across you sort of virtually because I read a, a blog <laughs> post that you had, had made when you were spending a few weeks in Portugal the this summer. The dear diary of my time in Lisbon and Portugal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was terrific. And you, were, you mentioned that your parents are Brazilian. Yes. And you grew up here in the States. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you have this very strong connection. And yet it's a little bit subtle for you because you never have actually lived at any great length of time in Visited Brazil. for about a month. Yeah. Every 10 years. Yeah, my, yeah. my parents were not as, uh, like, they, we didn't really have the money to go out there. Sure. But now that my parents have their green cards and whatnot, they can go whenever they want. They just never invite me. <laughs> um, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> um, but, um, so, yeah, so, but both of my parents are um, Mineiro. Um, so, uh, so, basically, a lot of, it was interesting. So, I was the first in my family to graduate from college. Um, ever in my entire family, so that's just weird, um, but cool and awesome. And um, you know, when they came to the country, I was pretty much the sort of their spokesperson. So I ended up like I, I was brought up on Portuguese and English, but they eventually, for the sake of you know parent-teacher conferences and whatnot, um, wanted me to express more of the American and less of the Brazilian. Um, which was, which actually really hurt me when I got to undergrad. Then, you know, the professor's like, you don't know samba. What is your problem? <laughs> uh, <laughs> features prominently in my work. Um, but in, in, in any case, uh, and the other, thing, the other thing, too, was my parents had this really strange relationship in wanting to be American, but also this very evangelical movement, which, which is actually a relatively growing movement in Brazil um, that has this really strange relationship between the culture. Um, and, you you know, being an American who is, you know, like, so there's the Brazilian removed, and then you're queer, which means you're, you know, religiously removed. Like, that was a piece of my culture that was sort of taken. Mm -hmm. And then I had to sort of rediscover it through literature and having to rediscover it through, um, through music and rediscovering it through food. I mean, food is, like, the big, like, so Mineiro food is, like, totally carnivorous, <laughs> um, you know, you go to the like the Hojizus where they carry the meat on the oh. stick. That's totally <laughs> us, and also the south of Brazil. Um, but for me, like for me, um, for example, a piece that I worked on yesterday, um, just last semester, was around the the food, like the construction of feijão tropeiro, which is this 
see smiles because everybody knows it's great food. Um, so it's like a very bean stew. It's like feijoada almost, but a little bit more rustic, a lot more yuca flour put into it. Um, and just sort of creating like the family dynamics from the making of this feijão tropeiro and having to share it to a bunch of playwrights who are not familiar with Brazilian culture at all. I mean, Brazilian culture in theater, in American theater, is reduced to one of two things. It's like the magical, like the magical mammy figure or the fetishized sex object. Mm -hmm. And I am not one of those either. <laughs> um, so I took it, so having that experience with Feijon Tropeiro, doing the piece, uh, sort of sparked this whole thing of like wanting to explore more elegiac forms in my own culture and having that expressed and translated for American audiences. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, and what's more elegiac than the notion of saudade, which is most people associate as, por as a Portugal thing, but it's a very Brazilian thing, which means probably my parents were like some of the saddest Brazilians you've met. Um, <laughs> but it was such a really big, huge part of me. Um, so going to Portugal and having to experience it and then finding out that like Fadu, which is such a beautiful piece of music that is originally from Brazil and the Portuguese sort of like took it with them. And it's like, this is really pretty. Like there's, there's a whore singing this, like, let's make this popular. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me back up for a second. You said saudade. Saudade, yes. So, so, so give us a description yes. of what that itself so is. So saudade is roughly translated, roughly, into longing, a deep longing for something, you, something yeah. or someone you have loved and lost and can never get back. Real upper. Um, <laughs> real great thing. But that was what my parents as immigrants from Brazil felt when they were in America. Mm -hmm. And... It was something yeah. that I, like, they felt when I left to college for the first time, and I felt that, and I felt that, you know, being like a queer person, not having to come back and wanting that access to that culture and not being able to get it, and that was exploring that in my work as a, as a queer Brazilian-American playwright and having to translate that for American audiences, which is like totally something we don't, American audiences don't get a lot of, is, um, is something that's been become more central in my work. Um, that and trying to capture like my mother's comedy or my mother's like situational, like we love, like, we love a comedy of embarrassment um, and situational lampooning more than anything. And trying to channel all that to playwriting which has sort of been my access point to my culture. That and cooking food and then mm -hmm. having that incorporated into even the process of, the process of acting and writing it out. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was, uh, so going to Portugal was a really good cementing thing and then having to come back and the first workshop, which is about Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, and it's like nobody, like you wouldn't think, and then the person, like everybody says like there's a saudade sense in it, mm. in the whole act of it, and that basically takes a Brazilian or a very Portuguese concept and sort of explodes it into something that we can definitely sense it's global and international mm -hmm. and theatrical. Um, which is something that I think has powered, like a lot of the culture has powered that in my own work. Mm -hmm. um, huh. So the work you're, you're uh, working on right now, mm -hmm. it, it comes out of your own personal experience. I mean, is it, are you sort of in your play that you're writing So, now? yeah. So, that, the, so I wrote three plays while I was in Portugal. So the first one was the Malaysia Airlines, but the second one was sort of a travelogy. So the second one ended up being like a series of travelogue monologues in Lisbon as a Brazilian-American person. And the third one was exploring Fernando Pessoa, who's a, a Portuguese writer. Um, so expanding that into like a family-oriented sort of thing, exploring Fadu, but also exploring um, 
like the the artist, the writer as a pro like these characters as a projection of the writer because that's what Fernando Pessoa did. Um, you know, he was essentially like making theater without making theater. So how would we resent that? Um, and then having to come that come at it from a very semi Brazilian perspective because I remember growing up in like Brazilian church and going to Brazilian church and what that meant and what that would mean for someone who's like from Portugal going to a Brazilian church and having to like go through two modes of translation to have to go back to have to go back because yeah. the cultures are very different yeah. um, mm -hmm. very different and the like for example the evangelical movement did, hasn't caught on in Portugal as it's caught on in Brazil and as it's caught on in America mm -hmm. um, and Brazilian America so um, so seeing like an evangelical church for the first time in Portugal was the weirdest experience I've ever had mostly because I couldn't understand them <laughs> but um, but yeah, but so see, so having that work out as mm -hmm. a sort of triple translation, mm -hmm. in a sense, and trying to navigate that sort of space as an artist, like a Brazilian artist writing about Portuguese people, but identifying yourself in the characters and the culture mm -hmm. and what that means when it spits back to you, mm -hmm. and having to navigate that, mm -hmm. um, which is something that is, is very strange for American audiences. It's mm -hmm. super literary, so trying to work on translating that to mm -hmm. something that's theatrical and palatable and understandable mm -hmm. is uh, the next leg of the work, which will be hopefully get a stage reading December 1st. So we'll, good, good. we'll see what happens. Yeah, good um, luck. Good so luck. Yeah. Well, so I, I asked someone earlier in the program, uh, you know, when they think about Brazil, what's the, what's the first thing they think about? And Maria said, uh, well, the language. Uh, you're, you're both from Brazil, spent a lot of time there, and now you're here as well. What, what, is, what is the thing you miss now that you're not there? Oh, that I miss. I mean, <laughs> um, a language would be something indeed, but I guess uh, the colors. You, you talked about colors. It's yeah. Very, uh, yeah, Brazil is very color, colorful and uh, food. Mm. Also fruit. We mm. have like men's, many fruit, fruit, um, fruits all over the year, all kinds mm. that mm -hmm. we can imagine, a juice, fruit, and stuff like that. So I miss food and color and a little bit of the summer <laughs> that's around the corner. Okay, but you know, it's it's not saudade. It's not that feeling, but we, we yes. feel we yes. feel if we spend a, a, like a long time mm -hmm. here. But I, th I think something of this color, this happiness mm -hmm. that is very related. But e even we are uh, very happy all the time. Yeah. Uh, you, you were asking about uh, soccer and what happened to Brazil just one day. Next day, everybody was making fun of everything <laughs> and was fine. And let's go to the next event, <laughs> something like this. So we have this disposition mm -hmm. of overcoming, overcoming, mm -hmm. overcoming, mm -hmm. even though things are not that nice. Mm -hmm. but, so that, that's a, that I also miss a little bit. But everything is so nice in here, too, and this exchange of experience, mm -hmm. I guess. It's, yeah. Yeah, and, and there are so many points of similarity, too. We are Americans, so that's also so nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can tell you what I miss the most, yeah. because I've been here for 12 years. Um, I, there is one, one element in our culture that I think is very positive, and it's somewhat European, uh, that we are relaxed, uh, way more relaxed, when we are supposed to be relaxed. Uh, 
uh, and a good example is like not that I'm saying anything against the American culture that which I admire in, in many many ways but when we Brazilians go to a party they go with the objective of relaxing and not being worried about the time that you have to go back home <laughs> uh, or enjoying a meal without worrying that whoever hosts the meal is already begging you to go. So uh, if you, that's, that is exactly the thing that I miss the most because I, I have great friends. I know great people, amazing people. But it's hard for me to understand why, why can't they just relax? <laughs> it's fine. It's Saturday the next day. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you. That's but, a perfect way for us to... But yeah. if it's Sao Paulo, that's wow. not so... That's not like... <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> People are all the time running. Uh, well, you're from Rio. So I'm from I guess Rio. Yeah, there you that's why. Beach. <laughs> so good to be there. <laughs> well, thank you all so much. This has been a lot of fun. Ryan Oliveira, good luck on all of this work thank you're you doing. Yes, and Monica Correa, so great to have you here. Thanks thank for you. having us. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Carla Ferreira. Wonderful to have you here thank in you Iowa. So much. And hope to see you again. And, really and uh, thank all of you for coming this afternoon to World Canvas, uh, this exploration of Brazil. It's been a lot of fun to, to uh, do this program today, and I hope you can come to the next World Canvas, which is on November 18th. We'll be meeting the winners of the 2014 International Impact Award, and we'll be learning about important efforts underway to attack poverty, hunger, and disease around the globe. So that's November 18th. Um, I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks so much for being here, and we'll see you next time. Good night.